0: So the um, school I attended from first grade to eighth grade, it serviced a rural area in the northwestern part of Wells County. There were under 30 kids in my class. The building itself was an old brick structure built in the early 1900s, and though it was quite small, it somehow housed all 12 grades right up until the mid-1960s. Because other classes used the small cafeteria for lunch, first graders had to go through the food line and then bring their plates back to their classroom and eat their lunches at their desks. And near the cafeteria in the basement was a small candy store open during the noon recess. Unfortunately, first graders could not go there unless we had a clean plate. We had to eat everything that was served. And this put me in quite a dilemma because I was a fussy eater I hated vegetables and refused to eat them at home or at school, and yet nothing was going to stop me from getting my daily fix of chocolate. And this was back in the day when a nickel, a mere five cents, could buy you a full-size candy bar. The solution I came up with was to scoop the vegetables into my desk when the teacher wasn't looking, and then shove them all the way to the back out of the way and just leave them there. And this was actually quite clever of me, but admittedly, I did not have a long-term plan in place. As far as I was concerned, those nasty vegetables were out of sight, out of mind. And I did this for several days, even two or three weeks. Every lunch, I learned to discreetly open the top of my desk and shove those horrid lima beans and Brussels sprouts and beets into it. Amazingly, none of the other students ratted me out. Our teacher, Mrs. Wall, a somewhat grouchy woman in her 60s, could be quite kind at times, but for some reason, most of her experiences with me did not incite her kindness. (laughs) There was one class when we were learning how to write out certain letters of the alphabet, and she went up and down the aisles looking over everyone's shoulders, inspecting their handiwork, and when she got to me, well, she spared no effort in complaining about the horrible odor surrounding my desk. Wendell brain, what is this horrible stench? Good heavens, child, I can hardly breathe. It smells like a nest of dead rats rotting away. Open up that desk right now. Along with the smell were all the gnats and other disgusting insects. (laughs) It looked as ugly as it smelled. My sin had found me out. The day of reckoning had come. All my hidden transgressions over the course of time was now revealed before the great judge and a whole class of witnesses. The verbal scolding in front of the other students was, well, I'm still scarred to this day. (laughs) This is the same teacher who on the very first day of school got crabby with me in front of the whole class for being Dutch, unable to talk right and she eventually pressured my mom into taking me to a special speech class where I learned to pronounce words, or at least some words. So it was all part of God's divine providence. But in the end, Mrs. Wall made sure that there would be no more visits to the candy store for me for the rest of the year, and I had to eat every vegetable of every meal, not to mention regular inspections of my desk. I would have preferred the wooden paddle from the principal's office over eating vegetables and being denied chocolate, but they reserved corporal punishments for fourth graders and up. Now, as I look back on it, this, uh, you know, the episode reminds me of a verse in second chapter Romans where Paul says that the ungodly are storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You cannot hide your sin. You might ignore it, forget it, dismiss it, but But God doesn't, and a day of reckoning will come. He sees all, and the stench of our sins rises up to heaven. The principle that sins are being stored up for a coming day of wrath is also found in Colossians 3 and 1 Thessalonians 1 and Romans 1 and many other passages in both the Old and New Testaments. One vivid illustration is found in the book of Revelation. In chapter 18, a voice from heaven declares that Babylon has, quote, piled up her sins to heaven, and that God has remembered her crimes and will now judge her for them. The whole chapter is quite descriptive. The words here are pretty striking. Sobering, piled up her sins to heaven. God has remembered her crimes and will judge her for them. Now, as a child, I wondered why God did not immediately punish me after doing something I knew that he disapproved of. I expected something bad to happen within the next couple days or week. And when it didn't, I eventually concluded that I was off scot-free. Unfortunately, this thinking is common among many adults. Perhaps they don't think sin is a big deal or that God doesn't care about it one way or the other. Some, of course, reject the whole idea of God and our accountability before him. And indeed, there have been those in an act of defiance have mocked God with blasphemies, shouting up to the heavens, daring him to strike them dead with lightning bolts while cursing him. But nothing happens, and this only emboldens them to embrace other sinful behaviors. Now, of course, what they, we, everyone need to appreciate is that while God might on occasion punish sin immediately, like Anias and Sapphira as one example. It seems that his general policy on this, as we learn from scriptures, is that he has reserved a day in the future for this. A day of wrath, as the Bible calls it. A day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We do not know when it will be, but it will come. In the meantime, there is a ledger alluded to in Revelation 20:12, And every action, every word, every thought is being recorded. Nothing is being overlooked or forgotten. The list of sins are piling up, piling up to heaven. Because God is holy, he has a resolved and settled opposition to evil. Sin is offensive to him, and every sin will meet the full weight of his opposition, namely punishment. And so, we have a choice between two options. Repent and turn to Christ and by faith accept the forgiveness offered through his atonement that on the cross, your sins were punished in him, or continue in your own ways, don't surrender to Christ, and bear the punishment of your sins yourself. And so for those who dismiss their need to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, well, they can expect a coming day of reckoning. As the days, weeks, years go by, they are storing up wrath for that day, adding to their punishment with each offense and transgression. That day of reckoning... Day of God's Wrath, is at least in part described in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 of the book of Revelation, 15 of the book's 22 chapters. The book, as we know, is mostly about God's judgment of sin, judgments upon the inhabitants of the earth before the end of the world, and judgments on the great day of judgment after the end of the world. So as you can see, we today continue our series on Revelation. This morning is part seven. We are finishing up something I started last time in part six, and it deals with the subject of God's justice and wrath. As you will remember, we looked at five significant designations about God that are presented in this book, five ways or five names or ways that he has identified. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and is to come, the Lord God Almighty, the one who sits on the throne, and the one whose judgments are true and just. Now, I only had a chance to introduce the last one here, and so today we are going to be focusing on it. Given that most of this book is about God's judgments upon those who resist his will and do evil, it is worth noting that these judgments are rooted in God's righteousness and wisdom. And Revelation, of course, is faithful to point that out um, many times. Because God's punishments result from his perfect and complete holiness, they will be true and just, every one of them. And this has to be kept in the front of one's mind while reading through the book. Now, the fact that his judgments are true and just is, when you think about it, both terrifying and assuring. Terrifying because, again, those without Christ can expect to face the full force of God's wrath for their sins. Assuring because his punishment will be an exercise of perfect judgment. There will be no second guessing on whether it was the right punishment or not, the intensity or the degree. It will be right. It will always be right. The punishment will truly fit the crime perfectly. It was the case in examples in the past that we read about in Scripture. It was the case on that day long ago when Jesus of Nazareth became the object of wrath and was judged and punished for our sins. It will be the case on the great day of judgment that is yet to come, and it is the case for the judgments we see described in Revelation. Every judgment is and will be true and just. So before we get into this much further, I'd like to just take a moment here to refresh our memory from uh, memories from the previous sermon of two weeks ago. Going back now to chapter 4, what we see there is that this chapter is foundational for what follows in the rest of the book. The visions of judgments on the world and on the powers of evil that take place all through chapters 6 through 20 result from the fact that the one who sits on the throne, described in chapter 4, is altogether powerful and altogether holy. As all holy, he is compelled to judge those who do evil. As all-powerful, he is able to do so. The holiness and righteousness of God that are recognized and proclaimed in that chapter require both the condemnation of of the unrighteous and the destruction of the powers of evil that contest God's rule and rebel against it. Thus, all the judgments from the opening up of the seven seals, and all the judgments from the sounding of the seven trumpets, and all the judgments from the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, all of these judgments are a manifestation of God's justice, of his holiness and righteousness. Now, we have spent time on the subject of justice in the past, so we're not going to take time to go through all that again today. The particular point that we are interested in this morning is that these judgments, again, as terrible as they may be, are true and just. That's our focus. They are perfectly administered. The punishments perfectly fit the crimes. This particular truth about God is woven through the whole book, both explicitly and implicitly. One of many clear examples is found in chapter 16. If you have your Bibles and would like to follow along, feel free. In verse 4, we read about the third bowl of wrath. All the rivers and springs of water turn into blood. This is pretty serious stuff. It makes some of our calamities in recent times seem pretty trivial when all the water turns to blood. And notice the response in the next three verses. Starting in verse 5, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, because you are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's wrath and the meeting out of punishment is not a subject, of course, that we're eager to talk about or um, think about. It's disturbing. It's unsettling. But nonetheless, it is a truth that we must accept. And more than that, when it occurs, either in the pages of Scripture, examples that we read about, or in the tribulations at the end of the age, or even on the great day of judgment, we are to do more than just reluctantly accept it, which is kind of our default attitude about this sort of thing. If we truly believe God's judgments are true and just, then we will approve of them and give our amen to them. In fact, in Revelation, we see that the exercise of God's wrath is even something that warrants our worship of him. If we worship God for being holy and righteous, then it follows that worship must extend to his doing holiness and righteousness. And punishing those who do evil is all a part of that. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 15. This is an interesting chapter, and it is strategically placed. In the previous chapters, 6 through 14, we have the judgments resulting from the opening of the seven seals and the judgments from the sounding of the seven trumpets. All serious stuff. Next of course are the judgments from the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath which begin in chapter 16. If the previous judgments were bad, well what's about to come is far worse and chapter 15 is a warning to brace yourselves for that. What is about to happen is so weighty that the reader is given a behind-the-scenes look into heaven where the preparations for these seven final judgments are being made. The implication here is that these things will get so bad that those who are going through it or witnessing it from here on earth would be tempted to accuse God of being out of control, that he's unfair, unjust, that he's actually being cruel, sadistic. But yet in heaven, before his throne, God is worshipped for this demonstration of his righteousness. The punishments are deemed to not just be appropriate, but necessary. For again, they are judgments that are just and true. Verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy." All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice in these expressions, great and marvelous deeds and just and true ways. And the revealing of those of these righteous acts that God is being referred to are references to all the judgments from the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the anticipated seven bowls of wrath. We simply cannot underestimate the significance of this. And indeed, the passage here coincides perfectly with something we see in the previous chapter. There in verse 7, we read of a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Essentially, give him the praise he deserves. Worship him as the Holy One. Worship him for he is about to show the world the true nature of his holiness. The hour of his judgment has come. Another example is found in chapter 19, and it is even, I'm missing something here. It's even um, more straightforward, starting in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting hallelujah, which literally means what? Praise. Praise. The Lord, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, praise the Lord. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. The manifestation of God's wrath is the very thing that invokes worship. And again, that is because his judgments are true and just. His judgments are a manifestation of his holiness and righteousness. Now, so far, nothing we've looked at would be all that troublesome for us. Everyone's kind of like agreeing For instance, whatever this great prostitute is, we feel no sympathy for it. And given the nature of its crimes as described in the previous chapter, we are in 18, we are glad to see it condemned and punished. Nor do we have any sympathy, at least not much, when reading about those we looked at in chapter 15, those suffering God's judgment in the seven bowls of wrath. We are told that they continued to resist God and cursed him. And so it's easy to conclude that they have it coming And we do not know them. We have no personal connection to them anyway. But there's another example in this book of where the exercise of God's wrath prompts worship in chapter 11. And what we read there can be quite a bit more sobering because it hits close to home. There, the reference to God's punishment would not naturally result in our amens, much less cheering and applauding and especially worship. So here is the setting described in chapter 15. I'm not following my cues very well, am I? Okay. The seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet, which immediately results in loud voices in heaven, proclaiming that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Everyone follow me so far? In other words, certain things are about to happen that cannot be explained except for them being a demonstration of God's power, evidence that his reign is breaking forth. There is just no natural explanation. It has to be the hand of God for what's about to come. And the fact that evil is being judged by him is itself a sign that the Lord's return is imminent. And as to be expected, the response in heaven to all of this is worship. Now for verse 16. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So in this particular case, what caught my attention is that this announcement that the time is near for God to judge includes the dead. This announcement is referring to, at least in part, to that dreaded day of the great judgment, as described later on in chapter 20. Here again, worship is rendered unto God because he is holy and exercises his justice. He judges sinners. And this is weighty stuff. I mean, it is one thing to agree with God in theory about his judgments of the unrighteous. It's altogether another thing to agree with him about that in real life, as in talking about those we know and love who have died without the Lord, and to worship God for punishing them. Well, how do we get to that point? It just seems impossible. When someone we loved and cared deeply about goes to the grave without their sins being with their sins being unwashed by the blood of Christ, uh, we are just left scrambling for some measure of hope. We're looking everywhere we can to find that hope. Even though they made no confession of faith, we tried to find comfort in telling ourselves things like, well, perhaps in those last moments before they died, they reached out to God. Maybe true. Or maybe they really were believers, but just didn't demonstrate much fruit in their lives. Their faith was very private. It's possible. Or only God knows their heart. We should not assume the worst. Yes, only God knows. But to speak candidly here for a moment, none of these offer anything all that substantial in means of genuine comfort. They are are based on possibilities and speculations, not facts. We have to face, not avoid, but face that very real possibility that they are indeed lost. And on the day of the great judgment, we'll be condemned to the place of ultimate doom. And if so, we have to somehow handle that. And the closer the person was to us, the harder all of this will be, especially when talking about a spouse or a son, a daughter, a sibling, a parent. These are not pleasant thoughts. You know, I've wrestled with this myself in trying to find a way to resolve it, to find some level of peace about the whole thing. When I was uh, 21, I had a close friend who committed suicide. At least that was the official report, but there's suspicions that he was murdered, but he died unexpectedly. Just a couple weeks before that, as a new convert myself, I shared with him the gospel, and he prayed the prayer of repentance. I'll never forget it. The joy that evening was just unspeakable for me. Unfortunately, he quickly returned to his former ways the very next day, and he just refused, outright refused to engage me on it. And so his death was really tough on many levels, but especially so when thinking about his eternity, because we were close friends. Even now, I have some relatives who are not walking with the Lord, and if they were to die unconverted, well, the whole thought is just too much to bear. It's a nightmare, too terrible for words. You know what I'm talking about in this. If the final state of the lost is as bad as the Bible says it is, How can you or I possibly find any peace in knowing that people we love deeply will be suffering there without hope? And let me just take this a step further. How can we possibly enjoy eternity in the future kingdom of God after the great day of judgment in the new heavens and the new earth? As great as that will be in our resurrected state, how can we enjoy any of it, at least to the fullest, knowing that loved ones are suffering forever? And again, these are disturbing things to think about. I've wrestled whether to even bring this up in a Sunday morning sermon. It's tricky stuff. I've, heard one, I've only heard one solution proposed for this. <clears throat> and it's based on a promise found in verse 4 of chapter 21. There we read that God will wipe away all our tears. And a lot has been read into that. And so it is suggested that after the day of the great judgment, that those who belong to the Lamb are grieving for their lost loved ones, and God removes their pain by causing them to forget them, forget everything about them, even forget that they existed. He wipes away all their tears. He wipes away all their memories. And I suppose this is possible, but it seems like a cheap solution to me, almost like deception, that God would just hide the truth from us. And based on what we see here in Revelation, I would propose something different for you to consider. Our coming to terms with God's judgments is to fully embrace the truth, not hide ourselves from it or be protected from it. That is, we, by faith, fully accept and appreciate and subscribe to the fact, without reservations, that God's judgments are both true and just even his judgments of our loved ones. We do not want the person punished, but we understand and agree that they must be. And as I've thought about this, it seems to come down to something Jesus said about who we love more. If we love a father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, son, or daughter more than God, then when on that great day of judgment the the unrepentant are condemned... We could very well find ourselves resentful toward the Lord. His attribute of holiness, something we should appreciate and worship him for, would instead be something we would find undesirable, if not abhorrent. If, however, we love God more, then we will be more troubled by the offense our loved one caused God than by his judgment of those offenses. Indeed, our love for God would compel us to be offended, that they offended God. So it comes down to that of who owns our devotion the most. This sense of being offended on behalf of God explains a statement in Psalm 139, a statement that often raises eyebrows when people read it. In his prayer, David tells God, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rebel against you? Now, I understand that Jesus taught us to love everyone, even our enemies, but here the point being made Is along a totally different line. David is presenting a case to God about his devotion to him. And his evidence here is this, your enemies are my enemies. Those who insult and offend and rebel against you, I despise, regardless of who they are. And initially we could see ourselves agreeing with David on that. Well, yeah, me too. But what about loved ones? Loved ones who fit that description. Loved ones who have no use for God and resist his word, his ways, his righteousness. Would we feel the same way? And again, it comes down, I believe, to a test of affections, of loyalties. In order to come to terms with this, we have to fully embrace the truth that God is offended by the sinful actions of others, that sin grieves him, angers him. That because he is holy and righteous, he is absolutely and completely resolved to oppose sin and evil. And all such actions will meet the full force of his wrath. That he has provided in his grace and love a way for deliverance from that wrath. A way to be forgiven. Repentance and turning to Christ who is punished on our behalf. That those who refuse to accept the salvation he offers will therefore by their choice face the punishment for their sins that such a punishment will be true and just. And if our love for God, and if, if we love God first and foremost, we will be at peace when it comes to the judgment of our loved ones. Now, that said, this is probably something that in our current fallen state, we can only accept on an intellectual level. That's where we start, you know, to start thinking correctly about these things. On the emotional level, I just think it's just too far of a reach for us. It's not that our attachments to our loved ones are too strong. It's that those attachments have been impaired by our fallen nature and are therefore, at least on some level, damaged and defective, even selfish. But in a resurrected state, not just our bodies will be transformed, but also our minds, and we will have true lucidity, clarity, We will see things as they really are, see things as God sees them, and feel the same way about things as he does. And because of this, I believe we will be at peace with his judgments and even praise him for them, praise him as the one whose judgments are true and just. And so, if the wiping away every tear refers to some sort of transformation from a state of grief to joy... And it might actually refer to us in the moment gaining this lucidity that I'm referring to. All right, so back to the theme of worship. As pointed out in previous weeks, we have many worship scenes in Revelation. And if we were to look at each one, we could see that the praises offered up to God are based on truths about who he is or truths about what he has done. God finds pleasure in and is glorified when we recognize and appreciate such truths and praise him accordingly. Content-based worship. Songs that focus on on our own love for God and our own worship and our own joy and so on. Songs that focus on ourselves rather than God are not actually songs of praise at all when you think about it. And so I'd encourage you to take note of this when reading through the book on your own. And And look at that. There are a number of different worship scenes and take time to see what this worship looks like and what it is that God is being worshipped for. And often, as you will see, God is worshipped for not just being holy and righteous, but for exercising that holiness and righteousness. Namely, the condemnation of evildoers, whether it is the beast or Babylon or the devil or the inhabitants of the earth or even the dead. Now, for us, we don't have many songs that include this theme of God's judgment of the unrighteous. It's generally not something most songwriters think of um, when they're writing their songs of worship. I only know of one song, and I came across it accidentally while visiting another church many years ago. Um, I started looking through their hymnal and came across it. I found it on the Internet and badgered Dave into learning it so that we could sing it here. And the title is, you may remember, God's power is revealed in the clouds. And many of the lyrics seem to have been taken right from the book of Revelation. But even this hymn, when you look at it closely, is not really praising God for the manifestation of his wrath, but is more about pleading with the unrighteous to turn to the gospel and repent. But yet, the truth of his wrath is front and center. So let me run through those lyrics because they are quite powerful. Come now, ye great before Jehovah, bring honor to his majesty. His mighty voice is heard with thunder, sink down into the dust and pray. The mighty God shows forth his power, his thunders roll in clouds on high, his lightning flashes on the waters and sudden torrents from the sky. So the songwriter is just setting the scene up. God's voice resounds upon the waters, his thundering word, all things does shake, proclaims his vengeance to his haters, and causes earth and rocks to quake. With glory, majesty, and power resounds the threatening voice of God. With flaming message, thrilling shower, he shows to us his chastening rod. Therefore, mankind of every nation, abase yourselves, humble yourselves, do not delay, Observe this wondrous indication that soon will come a judgment day. The Lord, first threatening in a storm, will smite the world with curse and ban. Oh, then repent and seek the Savior who died to rescue sinful men. The Lord is as a king exalted with wondrous might and in the sky, has set his rainbow as a token that grace and mercy now are nigh. Therefore, ye nations, heed the wise, his might and power recognize. He'll change his wrath to grace and favor, give rest and peace in paradise. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, and is to come. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who sits on the throne, and he is the one whose judgments are true and just. And as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, I'm mindful of something that Peter said in this month's Christology reading. To this you were called, he says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Even as Christ entrusted himself to him who judges justly, so must we. The context here, of course, in this particular passage has to do with a situation where believers face persecution. But the principle here uh, obviously applies to something much more wider than that, including our subject at hand today. And for that matter, it applies to the judgment that Christ received on our behalf. He accepted the punishment for our sins, and that punishment was true and just. God's wrath was truly satisfied, truly propitiated, and as a result, we received forgiveness. What God's justice demanded, God's love provided. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. The the atonement at the very center of the atonement is both the wrath of God, he is not passive about sin, he hates it, is resolved to punish it, and the love of God. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to bear that punishment on our behalf for those who humble themselves before him in repentance and faith. And as we come to the the table and as we share together in the bread and wine, we are in that proclaiming God's settled opposition to evil, that our sins deserve punishment And we are proclaiming that God in his love provided his one and only son to bear that punishment on our behalf. And may those who embrace this find great joy and peace in God's grace. And may those who have not embraced it recognize their need to do so.